Today is our last class. So I figured we should have a class about the, the end, the final redemption. Yeah. That's on the list. I don't have the list. Nobody looks at the list. <laughs> I have the memo left. Redemption, Monday, June 27th. That's not a prophecy, by the way. That's a, that's a curriculum. Just. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a prophecy. I don't know. We'll see how the day goes. Okay. Um, so, obviously, there's a lot to say about the redemption. Um, what I would like to do is to start with basics and move on to some more advanced things. Um, and my goal here is to kind of give a general context for things, okay? So... The Rambam, Maimonides, when he codifies the 13 principles of Judaism, he includes in this the um, belief and anticipation in the coming of mm-hmm. Mashiach in the Messianic era as one of the 13 fundamental principles of Judaism. And because this is Judaism, does everyone agree with that fundamental principle of Judaism? No. Now, taking a step back. There is a whole discussion about whether Judaism has fundamental principles. Or just is everything fundamental. There is a question, if it does have fundamental principles, what are the fundamental principles? And there's actually embedded in that a separate question, which is if it has fundamental principles, what principles, what are they serving? Because depending on how you understand the fundamental, what the purpose they're serving, we determine what you consider to be a fundamental principle or not. Now, there is therefore some debate as to why the Rambam formulated these 13 principles. I'm going to give you two reasons, which are opposite reasons, but they're the same reason, and then use that to try and understand why the Rambam put in the 13 principles of faith the coming of Mashiach and the final redemption. One reason is because the Rambam was looking for a lowest common denominator definition of Judaism. In other words, how do I know whether a religious group is part of Judaism or not? After all, I could have people who are mistaken about something, but they are still practicing Judaism. For instance, what if we had a bunch of Jews um, who mistakenly believed that um, Shabbos was on a Tuesday? Would we say they're practicing a different religion or they're just practicing Judaism and making a mistake? Ladder. What if we had a bunch of Jews who, not out of any sort of ideological point, but because they felt it was very difficult for them and they didn't want to put in the effort, ate pork. But they knew it was forbidden. They just like, like had a hard time controlling themselves. Would we say they're practicing a different religion or they're just sinners? Sinners. sinners right? See, so there's a difference between saying it's a, it's a different religion versus saying it's the same religion but they're making a mistake or the same religion and they're sinning. So what are the things that if you remove or eradicate in Judaism, it no longer is Judaism anymore. We have to view it as a completely separate religion and with all sorts of ramifications that would be implied by that. And the Raman lists 13. And one of them, the 12th, is the belief and anticipation in the coming of Mashiach. So what does that mean? What if you had a bunch of Jews who did everything, but they did not believe or anticipate Mashiach's coming? then we would be forced to say in the Rambam view that whatever they were practicing is no longer Judaism. 
Does anyone know of an example of something which is similar to Judaism, but no longer Judaism? Christianity. Okay. So, which of the 13 principles would differentiate Judaism from Christianity? Very simple one, by the way. Simpler. Simpler. So you don't know the 13 principles. The, the fact that the Torah is, is never going to be uh, changed. Right? Basic difference, basic idea in Judaism is that we are of a covenant with Hashem to keep the mitzvahs forever. And Christianity is this idea that, they call it a New Testament, yes, for this idea? Right, okay. Now, are there other problems with other kinds of Christianity and the Christianity also? Probably, but that's just a very obvious one. Okay. Um, Principle number seven is that Moshe is the greatest prophet. What religion would that obviously separate us from? Islam. Because a tenet of Islam is that? That's right. Okay, so you see, kind of see, you can see this very simply as the Ram is going through, okay, which things in Judaism do I need to separate it from, like secular philosophy, from Christianity, from, right? In order for it to retain its character as being Judaism, even though a person could still be sinful and still be making mistakes. Well, that tells us something about the centrality of Mashiach. Then the Rambam's view, Judaism without Mashiach is no longer Judaism. Because if he didn't feel that way, would he put it on the list? And if this is the reason why he compiled that list. That makes sense? Okay. Now, there were people who did not include Mashiach on the list. There was a very famous rabbi named Rabbi Yosef Albo. And he has a list of three principles. Do you want to know his three principles are? Principle number one, God exists. Principle number two, God communicates with man. Principle number three, there's a warning and punishment for obeying or disobeying God's commandments. Now, are those the three fundamental principles of Judaism or are those the three fundamental principles of monotheistic religion? So, right, so you see how he's viewing the notion of fundamental principles differently. Right? His fundamental principles wouldn't exclude a bunch of other religions. They might get rid of things like Buddhism and atheism, right? Maybe materialism, Marxism, but they don't get rid of any monotheistic religion. So different rabbis compile these different lists for different reasons, and that's why different things go on the list. But if the Rambam's reason was to really carve out where are the red lines that already it's, it's, it, you, you've corrupted and it's no longer Judaism anymore, that means that he feels that the coming of Mashiach is a critical part of what it is Judaism is all about. Okay, now, there's another reason why the Rambam may have compiled this list. Okay? Um, this is somewhat controversial in the sense it makes people feel uncomfortable. Okay? And because it's not the topic of the class, we're going to all set aside our discomfort and we're just going to understand the idea and move on, yes? There is a view, and the Rambam in some of his writings seems to subscribe to this view, although in other of his writings, maybe not, so there's some controversy about that, that you are entitled to a place in the world to come, in the afterlife, in, commensura in commensuration with the degree to which you know the truth of God, not the degree to which you're a good person. Meaning, somebody who does good things but does not really know the truth of God when they die, what's left of them? Nothing. 
On the other hand, somebody who knows the truth of God, when they die, what's left of them? The part of them that knows the truth of God. In other words, there is a way of understanding that the part of our souls that lives on after death is the part of us that knows God. Rambam does say this, and he says other things in other places, and, but there's this idea. So now, what if I do all of the mitzvahs, but I have mistaken beliefs about God and God's purpose in the world? What is that, what's, what's the result of that going to be then? I do all the mitzvahs, right? I keep Shabbos, I keep kosher, but I just have a totally mistaken understanding of the true, lack of words, nature of God. In this view, what's the end result of that going to be? Yeah, my that the person the person won't the person won't live on at in the afterlife because what lives on is our notion of the truth, our sense of God. And if our sense of God is flawed, then there's nothing to live on. And in this way of thinking about things, the Raman's thirteen principles are to make sure that a Jew who's practicing Judaism at least has a basic level of sensitivity to the nature of God. That even if you don't have a full grasp of the reality of God, the truth of God, at least you have an entry level so that something of the person lives on after death because mere, merely just doing the mitzvahs is not good enough. And so in this view, what the, what the 13 fundamental principles of Judaism are kind of like the curriculum of what a person needs to develop in their soul, in their psyche, in order to really um, get closer to God because the mere physical observance of mitzvahs might not be good enough. Now, not everyone agrees with this, and the Rambam himself, there's some controversy about how much he held of this idea. But what this would mean is, I can take two Jews, and one Jew is keeping all the mitzvahs, and the other Jew is keeping all the mitzvahs, and I can speak about which Jew is doing Judaism better by the degree to which they really appreciate and fathom these principles. And if they don't get them at all, then in that sense, even though on a technical level they're observing Judaism, in some sort of personal sense, they're not observing Judaism at all because they don't get what Judaism is. Um, and the evidence for this is the Raman writes after 13 principles, if you think you fully understood them, you have and you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper because they're very profound. So one way is that the goal is kind of to create a fence. One of the things is to create a fence. What differentiates Judaism from other things? And the other is to go internal and say, what makes Judaism real Judaism versus just kind of superficial, artificial, fake Judaism. And if you think about those two ideas, they're not really contradictory. They're just approaching it from a different angle. One is looking at it from myself versus other people. There's these other people, they believe that, I believe this. What differentiates my religion from their religion? What makes this Judaism and that something else? And the other is an entirely internal thing. What makes my Judaism really Judaism and not just a shell or superficial approximation of Judaism? But either way, that would mean the Rambam thinks that very central to what Judaism is all about is Mashiach. Now, is the Rambam's position in this um, unique or standard? That when we want to think of Judaism as uniquely Judaism, and we want to think about developing in Judaism, is the role of redemption in Mashiach central or not? Does anyone know the answer to that? Because I've just been mentioning one rabbi, the rabbi. I would think it's not central in the of your life. Like, it's not, not nothing, but it's definitely not central in the I don't know. So, for this, 
what I want to do to answer that question is to ask, what is Mashiach? What is the redemption? Because if we don't, if we don't know what that means, we don't really have any way of answering that question. We just know there is this thing, and the Raman considers it to be pretty central, but I have no way of really evaluating it. just have a name for it. So in the code of Jewish law that the Rambam compiled, he sets out a basic overview of Mashiach. And he says why Mashiach is so important. Right now I'm not going to differentiate between Mashiach, the individual, and the Messianic era and redemption. I'm just going to treat that as a whole. Later on in the class, I'll differentiate the two a little bit. Are keeping mitzvahs an important part of Judaism? Yes. How important? Very. Very? What? Essential. Essential. In fact, could we make an argument that that's basically all of Judaism is just keeping mitzvahs? No, no, that's essential. What, what part of Judaism is not keeping mitzvahs? Believing in Hashem. That's a mitzvah. Uh, that's a mitzvah. I mean, if I'm loose in my definition of mitzvah, if I become very rigid, maybe not. But if I'm very loose in my definition of mitzvahs, I mean, a mitzvah simply means stuff that God wants us to do, right? So, isn't that... Yeah, I might have different classifications of mitzvahs. There's 13, does it make them a list? Are there general mitzvahs? I mean, as they the notion of mitzvahs, God, stuff God wants us to do, okay. Has there ever been a point in Jewish history, since Hashem gave us the Torah, where the Jewish people have collectively had the ability and in practice did keep all the mitzvahs? Yes. No. There's never been a period of time. Since Hashem gave the Torah on Mount Sinai, there's never been any time in Jewish history where the Jewish people have kept all of the mitzvahs, had the opportunity, and actually did keep all the mitzvahs. Impossible. So, Well, there was Shemitah, which the Jews as a general... You had individual farmers who kept Shemitah, but as a general, the Jews were not keeping Shemitah because Shemitah means not working the land in the seventh year. That's kind of hard in agricultural society. You really have to trust God. And let's just say as a whole, in fact, their sages say the reason that there was 70 years of exile after the destruction of the temple was so that the land could rest for 70 years to make up for the 70 Shemitahs that the people didn't keep. Well, we don't keep it now also. I mean, there, there are individual Jewish farmers who keep it, but the vast majority of uh, Shemitahs that you, in the land of Israel, you don't work the land for every seven years. That's, uh, yeah. Jews have not been really good with that one. Um, every 50th year, you have to free all your, all your Jewish slaves and give back all the land you purchased in the land of Israel. This applies only when there's a temple, but during the first temple period, they didn't do that one either. Because pocketbook. People don't like giving up things that... Okay. Then let's throw in the whole um, rampant idolatry that happened during the first temple period. Right? And the, the inappropriate um, relations between men and women that was occurring. And the wanton murder and theft that was occurring. <laughs> you read the prophets? Yeah, it wasn't like... I mean, you had exceptionally righteous people and you had people who could reach tremendous spiritual heights, but to say the people as a whole were, were extremely devout and keeping all the mitzvahs is just not true. In fact, we didn't even keep more than two Shabbos. 400. The second Shabbos after Hashem commanded the Shabbos, someone violated Shabbos. 
So now, imagine someone gets up and says, I don't believe that there ever will be a time where we will keep the Torah as God intended. Does that sound like they are really on board with Judaism? Well, so what they're saying is that God was wrong. No, it's just saying that we're human, we grapple. So we'll try. So God was wrong. He said we'll do it perfectly. Does God, think, let's think about this for a second, okay? This is very important. Does God make commands or suggestions? What's the difference in a command and a suggestion? One's optional, one's not. So... If I come to a person, I say, and this is something people we don't like to think about because we're like very into our own individual lives and we want to do things our way. So when the rabbi gets up and speaks about Shabbos, we, we think, oh, it's a nice suggestion of keeping Shabbos and enhance my life, right? But that's not what God said. Can I be blunt for a moment? God said, keep Shabbos. And if you don't? Well, that's spiritual. If you don't? Anyone know? Die. <laughs> like now there may be a lot of like technicalities and we don't actually putting people to death all the time but that, that's a pretty heavy statement right okay um, the idea that the idea that God is commanding things that we can't really do is the basis of a certain religion anyone know what that religion is Christianity. That's actually, that's like the, the allure to Christianity that started regular. One of the big allures was that God has commanded things that we cannot do and therefore we're kind of doomed to failure in God's eyes and we need some way of dealing with that and that's where Christianity really sinks in. So denying that there could ever be a state where we're going to all do the mitzvahs and is an act denying the legitimacy of all of Judaism. Now, does that mean we should be, be um, Pollyannish and think it's just, oh, of course, just one day it all just magically work out. No, obviously, you have to understand how that could work and how that could happen. So what are the obstacles for us keeping the mitzvahs? Anyone know? Okay, so one kind of obstacle is our own evil inclination, right? Or our, our evil inclination or the inability to deal with it properly. Okay, so we'll call that in, internal obstacles. Sometimes there's a state or something in the external environment. Right, and there's external things, right? For instance, if you are... Exiled, you're not living in the land of Israel. Can you keep the mitzvahs in the land of Israel? Okay, what if you're living in the land of Israel but not enough Jews are living there so certain mitzvahs are no longer in effect such as the biblical law of Shemitah is not in effect right now, only the rabbinic law because the majority of Jews don't live in the Holy Land. Um, how about the temple rituals? Can you do those? Why not? The temple, right? So you're seeing, in other words, there are external obstacles, if you want, I'll call them objective obstacles, and there are internal obstacles, or subjective obstacles, right? So what would the messianic era have to be? What would have to define it? No obstacles. That's the basic definition of the messianic era is, objectively speaking, there is a world in which we can do all of the mitzvahs. And subjectively speaking, there's nothing internally that is making it that we, can't, we aren't motivated to do the mitzvahs. So, when Mashiach comes, will there be anti-Semitism? No. no. Why not? Not like what will cause it. Why can't there be anti-Semitism when Mashiach comes? Because it's an obstacle. Because that ends up creating obstacles keeping mitzvahs. Will the Jews live outside of the Holy Land? No. no. Why not? 
we can't keep the mitzvahs outside the Holy Land. Yes? Okay, so, so for everything I'm saying here, I'm making broad statements. Okay. Could an individual Jew leave the Holy Land in an individual circumstance? The answer is yes. The Jewish people as a whole would have to live in the Holy Land. Because you have to know what mitzvahs are entailed. So for instance, there's mitzvahs that you cannot do unless the majority of Jewish people are living in the Holy Land. Oh, it's majority. Right, the people as a collective. And then there's the question, okay, you, I mean, you obviously can't do 25 different mitzvahs at the same time if they're all contradictory. So if you have a good mitzvah reason to be in Miami, then you're not not doing mitzvahs by being in Miami. So you could be in Miami if there's a Torah reason to be in Miami. You wouldn't be in Miami for a non-Torah reason. Because if it's a non-Torah reason, then there's an external obstacle keeping it. So I don't mean to say that we're all like stuck inside the Holy Land, but we would only be leaving the Holy Land for reasons that the Torah thinks are reasons people should leave. In other words, that we'd be doing some kind of service of Hashem. Okay. Yeah? Is it true that at that time, the rest of the world will be So there's an idea about the holiness, but I don't want to talk about anything spiritual. I just want to talk about the, the actual mitzvahs. There are mitzvahs that have to be done in certain geographical locations and not others. And the borders of the Holy Land do change. We're promised a bigger Holy Land than we have now. Um, Avram was promised a land that usually belonged to 10 different people. Um, do you have a marker? I'll show you this one. This is not a precise map, and as we do here, it's subject to dispute, but roughly speaking. So, um, this is Canaret, Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea. Yeah. This is the Sinai Peninsula. Okay. There's a stream here. This is the Euphrates River. It would appear, there's a confusion about this, that the land that was promised to Avram would entail, say, this is, this is Beersheba, or something like this. Whereas the modern state of Israel the modern state of Israel. So there's this thing over here, over here, the thing about Syria, and Jordan over here. It's also part of, and then there's a question about which islands in the Mediterranean also come to place. Possibly even you know, things like Cyprus and Greek, depending where you're going for. This is the most straightforward way of reading the Torah. There is a view that says the border goes all the way to the Euphrates in the south. It says the border goes to the Euphrates. The Supreme Court reason that it goes to the Euphrates in the north, but if it goes to the Euphrates in the south, then you get a good chunk of your rock, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that a miracle that we all did there, except not? No, it would be high rise buildings. Okay, but now there are also internal obstacles. For instance, people are stupid. Right? People are, right? People are stupid. And by, by, by stupid, I mean that people make poor decisions, right? But if they knew better, they wouldn't make? Mm -hmm. So when Mashiach comes, will people be stupid? No. no. People, are, people are 
egotistical. In other words, we get into arguments over things that really there's no reason to get into arguments over. Okay. So I want to now mention one of my favorite prophets of the Messianic era. His name is Karl Marx. You heard of Karl Marx? Yes. Okay. So Karl Marx had this idea. What? I'm being, I'm being somewhat cheeky. <laughs> he was Jewish and, you know, elevate his soul. So he, he had this idea. He had this idea, which is that when people get really good at making stuff, that it costs almost no effort to have the stuff that we need, there's not really any reason to have this notion of private ownership. I'll give you an example, okay? Do you pay for your use of GPS technology? Why not? Why is it free? What? Okay, th there's that element, but before that, how much money does it cost to produce the entire GPS network? How much? Let's say it's $10 billion. Divided over every single human user, for extended time, turns out to cost how much per individual use? What? Probably below a cent, particularly, yeah. It costs very, per use. And remember, it's not like you have to keep putting new satellites up every, every five minutes. So what ends up happening, right, is that if, a, if we get really good at having abundance in things, then do we, the notion of having to divide who owns what becomes a little bit silly. In the Messianic era, what does it say? There will be so much abundance that people will look at luxuries like their common dirt and the notion of competition will cease. Does Judaism believe that private ownership as a social phenomenon is a useful thing? Sure it does, why? Because we have to figure out who owns what because there's a limited amount of resources and when you have less, you can do less in life, right? But what if all of the resources are in abundance? Does it really, if, 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 think about it like this, right? If I, bring in, if I bring into this class a plate of cookies which has 20 cookies, it becomes kind of important to know who gets which cookie, right? Because if you want a cookie, and I want a cookie, right? I don't know, is there 20 people in this room? There's a little less than 20 people, right? So everyone wants a cookie. But then there's some leftovers, right? So I want two cookies, but you want two cookies. And, you, and now there's not enough for everyone to have two cookies, right? So it becomes a whole issue, right? What if I bring in 7,000 cookies into this classroom? Like nobody starts... Nobody even wants one. At that point, it's like, have whatever cookies you want. It doesn't matter, right? So abundance is a critical factor, a critical aspect of the... Messianic era because when there's a when there's a shortage of resources, right? We start getting competitive. That limits our ability to do the things that we're really here to do doing mitzvahs. And so the Messianic era is described both in the prophets and in the sages and in the Jewish law and the Zrambam as essentially a time in which all of the external and internal obstacles to doing the mitzvahs have been removed. And um, that means everyone's going to be doing what God wants, and that means God will truly be king over the universe in a way that he's never been king over the universe. Now, does it make sense to say that that idea is like, eh, maybe, yeah, maybe no, and still preserve what Judaism is about? No. Right? If, like, before we get to anything mystical or spiritual, on a very basic level, if Judaism is about the fact that God commanded us to live in a certain way, right? then the fact that we really do live that way and God doesn't set us up for failure, we're really, we live in a situation where our, the external and internal obstacles, the objective reality and our subjective experiences allow us to really do what God wants and thus God can truly be said to reign on earth, 
That's Judaism. As the Rambam says, the prophets are just full of this stuff. You don't have to like, do a lot of interpreting. So to take Mashiach out of Judaism is basically to turn Judaism into something else. That's the starting point. Now, what I want to point out here is very, very important. What follows from this is that there's a basic level of continuity between Judaism in the pre-Messianic era and Judaism in the Messianic era because the Messianic era is just doing Judaism properly and in the exile is doing Judaism improperly. Right? So is it correct to say, and I want to, want to be very careful about the wording, is it correct to say the purpose of Judaism is to bring about the Messianic era? No. What would be the correct thing to say? If I, I want to keep the word purpose. Right. The Messianic era, the purpose of the Messianic era is that Judaism should be as it ought to be. Which means a devaluing of the Messianic era is a devaluing of Judaism. And that's on the very simple level we're getting. Anything spiritual, anything metaphysical, why the Rambam thinks the coming of Mashiach is a fundamental principle of Judaism. You said that we won't be doing the mitzvahs properly? No, we're now not doing mitzvahs properly. We're doing this as best we can, somewhat. I mean, at least for the, uh, as far as the objective problems are concerned. The subjective problems, I mean, maybe we could do a better job of that. Yes? There's no such opinion. Really? There is a discussion about mitzvahs after the resurrection of the dead. That's discussed. That's a different topic. I'm not going to touch that. Resurrection of the dead and Mashiach are two different concepts. The Rambam even has them as two different principles. The resurrection of the dead is like a whole other kettle of fish. We're not going to go there. But the, the Gemara does discuss what, what's called lusted lava in the future and the context there is after the resurrection of the dead. Because the discussion is like burying a person in clothes that they're not allowed to wear when they come up for the resurrection. Is it going to setting them up to sin or not sin? And that, that's a separate discussion. The Messianic era by... Um, it's a good way to know that you have a false messiah around if he's going around telling you you don't have to keep mitzvahs. <laughs> okay? Now, I, I know that a lot of times when you learn Hasidus, these things get mixed together, but it's important to realize they are different things. Okay, now, um, by the way, according to Hasidus, even when the resurrection happens, we still keep mitzvahs. All the statements, the contrary, are worked out somehow, but um, back to uh, all of these things. All of these things are, are, as the Rambam says, things that even the prophets didn't have a clear tradition on. It's exactly what they need. So, okay. Now, no. The purpose of Judaism is is God took us. I mean, what was the name of that class we started? The first class, right? God came down the mountain and he took us out of Egypt. Came to the mountain and said, oh, "We have a covenant, and you're going to do my mitzvahs, right?" That's that's Judaism, right? When are we able to really live up to that covenant fully? So Mashiach, the purpose of Mashiach is to bring about Judaism. You know the song, We Want Mashiach Now? You ever heard this song? We Want Mashiach Now. Okay. So one time there was a bunch of guys in 770 singing the song, We Want Mashiach Now. I told the story ever? No. So the Rebbe's secretary, Rabbi Chodakov, saw them. And he, was, he was known to be very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
direct and, 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 and somewhat humorless. Not humorless. That's not the right word. Somewhat scathing in his humor, I guess is a better way to put it. So he says, well, it says when Mashiach comes, we're going to do nothing other than serve God. Mitzvahs learn Torah. So saying we want Mashiach now is just basically saying we don't have enough time to do mitzvahs and learn Torah, but you guys waste a lot of your time, so what are you complaining about? Mm-hmm. Right? What do you mean? We want, well, when Mashiach comes, then what? Then you're going to be able to serve Hashem as you're supposed to. So, like, are you using all the opportunity now? Mm-hmm. That was his comment on them singing the song. He's like, you know, if you're using all of your time to serve Hashem and you feel like you don't have enough time because you have all of these unnecessary things, right? Scarcity, sickness, right? Stupidity that is making it difficult and so you want to get rid of those things, well then, fine. But if, if you're saying, like, I don't, I don't really care about serving Hashem, I'm not utilizing the, as much as I can, then it's a little bit kind of silly as an adult to claim that that's what you really want. Yes? So, so, so the thing is like this. We have a principle in halacha, which is that if you cannot do something because of external factors, you are exempt, but it is not as if you did the mitzvah. Okay. And so because of that, it's not, so as an individual level, it's fine for you to say, I couldn't do it objectively, and so I'm exempt, and so it's not my fault, and God will have a problem with that. But collectively, it's a problem if everybody's exempt from something, then God is just commanding things for no reason. So it's like, it would be weird to say you have a society where nobody ha- no Jewish men have left arms because then they would all be exempt from putting tefillin on, but then why would God command tefillin, right? It'd be weird. So to say you have a society where everybody's exempt from bringing sacrifices, so then why did God command sacrifices? Everyone's exempt from the laws of um, sounding the show for every 50th year on Yom Kippur, but then why would God command such a thing? So, so... If the issue is I'm not doing this because objectively I'm incapable, I have no liability to God, but as a community, it means we're not in the place where God wants us to be because as a community, we should be able to be doing this mitzvah. Does he have to put in some effort to them? Like, what I mean effort, I don't really mean that. I mean, like, allowing, like, the stars to align? Yeah. If you're poor, you can't do mitzvahs as well as you can if you're rich. So if you're ill, you can't do mitzvahs as well as you can when you're healthy. If you're um, being persecuted, you can't do mitzvahs as well as when you're free. So there's a general idea in Judaism that Mashiach comes, redemption comes, when we return to God. The idea is we do tshuva and Hashem brings Mashiach. That's the basic idea in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, using a simple analogy, if your child needs help with homework and the child is at the age where they need to be taking some degree of personal responsibility, when do you help them with their homework? If they're putting in the effort, right? If but if they're gonna sit there and say, you do it for me, well, I'm doing it for you. But if you're doing it and you get stuck, then I'll come and help them. That's the basic idea. And okay, now I wanna just emphasize, why am I, have I spent the first half of the class talking about this stuff? Because very often we start talking about Mashiach, we move right into profound metaphysical things, spiritual things, and we lose sight of yeah, the practical basic thing. I want to just give one um, other analogy which I think is very helpful and then we're going to move into things which are a little more mystical um, and philosophical. I want you to imagine the following scenario. You have a couple and they are not getting along. 
So they go to a marriage counselor to help work out their marriage. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, but eventually they solve their issues and they're able to now have a happy, healthy, productive marriage. And when they finish, they turn to the marriage counselor and they say, thank you. And they turn to each other and they say, okay, now we can get divorced. Because we, 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 we finished the goal, right? We worked out our problems, the goal is over, right? Now we can move on. That's kind of silly, right? Because the working out the problems was so that they can have a marriage, right? So to say that the goal of Judaism is to bring Mashiach would be to say like the goal of working out your marriage, the goal of marriage is to work out your problems. Once your problems worked out, now there's no reason to stay married. When there are problems, it affects the quality of the marriage. If it's all about this covenant with Hashem and keeping the mitzvahs, exile creates a whole slew of problems and having Mashiach solves those problems so that Judaism can be as it should. Okay? Um, and it's very important to think of that, okay? have that in mind. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about um, two parts of redemption, two parts of Mashiach. One part is the person of Mashiach. And the second thing, if we have time for, is I want to talk about the change in reality when Mashiach comes. So. What we did up till now is just the basic idea of why Mashiach is so central to Judaism. Because what Mashiach means is that we can genuinely keep the mitzvahs as God intended without any um, you know, discounts or obstacles or whatever the case might be. Um, and that means that the Torah is really legitimate and not just an impossible demand or an unreasonable demand. Does anyone know what the word Mashiach actually means in Hebrew? It's a Hebrew word. What? It means anointed. What does it mean to be anointed? It, it, so literally it means that someone poured oil on your forehead. That's what it literally means. But it means a chosen, appointed for something. Okay. So in the Hebrew scripture, in the Tanakh, the word Mashiach means anybody that is appointed by God for something. So it's just a general term. So every king is called Mashiach. Why? Because every king was appointed by God to rule over the Jewish people. Um, when the Jewish people would go to war, there would be a priest who would lead them out to war. He was called the Kohen, who was Mashuach Muhammad, who was anointed for war. The high priest was also called the Kohen Mashiach, the anointed high priest, the anointed to be the high priest. So getting the theme? So anytime God has appointed this person as a special role, they're called Mashiach. Okay. So what does it mean when we say that there's, there's Mashiach is coming? What does that mean? That means that there's someone who is appointed by God to do something. So they have to ask the question, what is this person appointed to do? And the idea is that they're supposed to make the changes necessary that Jews end up doing all the mitzvahs. That's what it means to be the person that is Mashiach. Yes. Don't we all have? Yes. No, ask, ask. So then. So therefore, when we move beyond the more literal uses of the word into a more, I don't know, spiritual or borrowed sense of the word, yes. And therefore, in the Hasidic and Kabbalistic sources, it speaks about everyone having a spark of Mashiach in himself. And on a very simple level, that's what that would mean. Yeah. 
But the thing I think that's very important to understand is that so to Mashiach means that he's appointed to a purpose, to do something. Okay? So, what makes Mashiach significant, and this is very, very important, what makes Mashiach significant is not that this person exists, but what? What makes them significant? What they're going to do. Right? Okay. So, what is Mashiach supposed to do? Okay, so what are the, we said there's how many kinds of obstacles? Internal and external obstacles. Okay, so what kind of person would Mashiach have to be if he removed the external obstacles? Godlike. No, godlike is really bad. We do not have people who are godlike. Right, so I'm saying I'm What? He would have to, no, I want you guys to, I want, he would have to be political. That is 100%. He would have to be political, okay? Mashiach would have to be political. And by political, I mean it in the original sense of the term political. Someone who engages with society as a whole and is influential in, on that level. Can Mashiach be some guy sitting in a cave that nobody knows about? Okay. Now, in Judaism, we have different assigned roles. We have, I'm going to go through some assigned roles. Okay. Assigned roles meaning that these are, these are father, mother is not a assigned role. That's like a biological thing. Child is not, a, is not an assigned role. Assigned roles are like you could get the position or not get the position. So what are some of these assigned roles? In Judaism. So we have rabbis, right? That's an assigned role, right? Rabbis are a certain position. You could become one, not become one, right? We have prophets, right? There's a role for prophets. Becoming a prophet is slightly harder than becoming a rabbi, yes? Okay, we have priesthood. Um, God, God selected someone to be priesthood and then just decided to make it hereditary. So if the rest of us were kind of out on that, right? Okay. So there's different, there's different roles. And all these roles have some element of a political dimension to them, right? Which role in Judaism is entirely defined by its political nature? Anyone know? A melech, a king. Which means if Mashiach is going to be assigned to this kind of a role, then what kind of spot does Mashiach primarily occupy in the Jewish structure? Primarily the role of prophet, primarily the role of priest, primarily the role of teacher, or primarily the role of king. I want you to see how that makes a kind of sense. It's not, oh, there's a king. If Mashiach is a person who has to make these kinds of changes on the level of society, the role he plays is not primarily that of a teacher of wisdom, not primarily a prophet to convey the message of God, but primarily someone who has influence over all of society, and therefore the role that... The, Jews and carves out for that is the role of a king. Jewish society or... Oh, but now let's go back for a second. Let's just think this through. If there's anti-Semitism in the world, is that going to create obstacles for us doing mitzvahs? Yes. So is it sufficient for Mashiach to be king over only a small group of Middle Eastern people hanging out in the, you know, in Israel? No, we tried that before, right? It didn't work out very well. Remember, you know, we had a King David... We had a King Solomon. We still ended up in exile. Didn't work out so well. So therefore, what kind of... You would need a Syrian... So what kind of king would this person have to be? What? No. No. Masad is not going to go to What kind of king? What kind of... What kind... 
kind of like that. And if you actually look, not kind of, by the way. Like actually like that. That's what it says. To quote, to quote, to quote the book of Psalms, Vayerd miyam adyam, he will rule from sea to sea. What? No. Or to quote the Torah, Vikarka Kolbane Shais, he will dominate all the descendants of Shais. Shais was the son of Adam to which all human beings are descended from. So we need a kind of person who is able to rule over everyone because without that, it won't work. Now, I would like to point something out. This is very important before we go forward. Can you rule, can you rule in a stable way if your, only basis, if your only basis for rule is that you are more powerful than other people? It's, I forget what it's called. Just think about, it. is that a stable way to rule? So is Mashiach is the kind of person that is appointed to be emperor of the world because he seizes power merely? No, it doesn't mean there's no exercise of power. So what kind of the qualities would this person have to have if they're going to rule? Right. There would have to be somebody, everybody, what? Why not? Yeah, but you haven't explained why. You just asserted we're human and that's impossible. And I asked why not, because we're human. Why? That's true. That's true. Humans do have a nature to scream. What other nature? One second, one second. One second. What other natures do we have? To argue with one another. But that's the same nature. What other natures do we have? What other natures do we have? In other words, doubt. Yes. There's doubt. There's. Okay. People have other natures. In other words, one of the things, one of the things that God created people, they have many different natures. One of the natures of people is that people unify around things that they feel transcend their own personal experience. This is a human nature. This is not, okay. For instance, let's just use the following example. How do you get countries to mobilize in war? Patriotism. Fancy word. What is patriotism? What? There's some sense that the country is bigger than myself and that causes people to be able to set aside transcend differences towards common goals, right? This is, this is actually what makes people very different than most animals, by the way. We can create these large groups around things that transcend any one individual, okay? So what, kind, so what will Mashiach have to be able to give people a sense of in order to rule everybody without just suppressing people's individuality through power? would have to give them a sense of something very transcendent that evokes their own natural tendency to be devoted to something beyond themselves. By the way, this is the Jewish idea of a king in general. So this person transcends human nature? Human nature no, it's not, it's not that transcends human nature. Human nature is just more involved. I think it's very important to think about human nature in a, in a more complex way. I can be extremely... I can be extremely argumentative with someone in one setting and completely set aside my differences in another setting, both manifesting different aspects of my nature, right? You don't... If, if, 
something is truly important, yeah? Can I set aside the difference I have with other people to pursue something that's truly important? Yes, of course. Okay. That, is that part of my human nature? Yeah. Okay. So what if someone gives me a sense that something is of, is of extreme value and extreme importance that transcends any one individual's concerns? Then and what is the... Right. And what if, by the way, that transcendent thing has a role for your differences? For instance, for instance, let's use the following analogy, right? Let's say you have a very important task that needs to be done, but there's a question of how to do it, right? So everybody can be devoted to achieving the task, and yet everyone feels if we're going to achieve the task, we need to hear from different viewpoints to consider all the different options. So you can have a a furious discussion and disagreement on the one hand while everyone being on the same page in some other sense. We're all trying to pursue the same goal because we realize it's really important. You mean like, if you get, for example, you have, I don't know, like, So what if, so this kind of person, right, is going to have to evoke that sense that there's something transcendent all people should be devoted to, namely God on the one hand, but in a way that actually is functional, meaning that recognizes that people are created by God to have different points of view so that they should engage in these kinds of discussions. So there is an element of that. In other words, what I want you to start, if you start thinking of the role that Mashiach has to play, so you start thinking, okay, well, what kind of person could this be? It has to be a person that people respect, not a person that people are afraid of. It has to be a person who brings out the best in people, not somebody who, um, you know, uh, uh, um, um, imposes, it, it makes, people, makes people shrivel up. I mean, it, it, otherwise you don't create that kind of a thing, okay? Um, and same thing with the internal obstacles, right? Has anyone ever mentored a teenager? Um. Yeah? If, now, do teenagers get caught up in a lot of stupid stuff? Yeah. If you go around telling the teenager that's just stupid, yeah. do, do they... Do they just on, on that face of it say, oh, okay, well, now you've told me it's stupid, so now no. 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 That doesn't really work, right? Right. Is there a way to convey to the, to the teenager that it's stupid in a way they can actually get it? Yeah, but they'll probably What? Well, I mean, it's a matter of degree. How would you go about it? If you wanted to convey to the teenager that something is really stupid. What? What? Okay, personal connection. Well, let me ask you a question. Are they incapable of realizing that it's stupid? No. No. Now, I'm going to ask you one other question. Is the main thing for them to realize that that thing is stupid or the main thing to realize what is wise and then automatically if they realize what's wise, then they see it as stupid? See the difference? So what if they see you as a wise person, someone to emulate? Right? You model that. And they have a sense of connection to you and admiration for you, right? And they start to develop a sense that, obviously they can't be somebody else, right? Then that, you, without even telling them that something is stupid and unbecoming, they become, get more sense, they get a sensitivity to that. Now, are we limited in our ability to do that? Yeah? 
Are some people better at it than others though? Right? There are some people when they enter your life, you get a sense like they're living with some kind of a truth and kind of an integrity that gives you, reorients you and makes you realize like how silly and foolish certain things in your life are and make you more willing to let go of them. So Mashiach would have to be that kind of a person. Like, you see what I'm doing? Like, like, like Mashiach can't be somebody who comes around with a magic wand and says, magically poof. There's a famous story of the, of the, of the uh, Alter Rebbe where he wanted to do a mitzvah and he was in prison, so he couldn't do the mitzvah and he asked permission from the guards and they said no, so he did a miracle. And um, he needed them to stop the boat. They were taking him from one pr- prison to the other and he asked them to stop the boat and they said no, so he stopped the boat himself using a miracle. And then he said the tillim, the psalms, preparing for the mitzvah and then he continued, then let the boat continue and then he asked the guards to stop the boat. And the idea was that he didn't want to do the mitzvah on the basis of a miracle. He wanted to do the mitzvah in the world as God intended it to be. In other words, that at the end of the day, if, the, if Mashiach is about bringing about a world where we can really serve God as he intends to, if Mashiach comes around with a magic wand and poof, magically, just changes everything to make it work, then it's not really doing things in the world. It's, it's cheating. So Mashiach has to work within the framework of the world, within the framework of human nature. Which is why the Ramam actually argues and says that as a mere point of law, if Mashiach doesn't do a single miracle, it doesn't matter. Now, will Mashiach do miracles? Our traditions probably, but it's not necessarily a requirement because it, Mashiach has to work with human nature. So human nature has to act, has to develop and bring out the good parts of the human nature. Um, what other characteristics would this person have to have? So if they be a king, they have to have this kind of um, bring out this sense of this sense of, of, of admiration and respect and vision in people. What else would that person have to have? I mean, it goes without saying it would have to be God fearing himself, right? And devout and knowledgeable and Torah, okay. But what else would have to be true about them? Care. They would have to care. Yeah. That's very important, right? What? Like a Moshe. In fact, when Hashem told Moshe to take the Jewish people out of the land of Israel, you know what Moshe's response, uh, not out of the land of Egypt, you know what Moshe's response was? Not me. Not me, rather who? My brother, who cares? That's one interpretation. There's another interpretation. He says, Shlach tishlach. Send the one who you will send. Who's the one who you will eventually send? Mashiach. Mashiach. Moshe's like, you know what? I can get this project started, but I'm not good enough to finish it. In other words, Moshe is superior to Mashiach. In what way? Moshe was a superior prophet. Moshe was a superior teacher. Moshe was a superior lawgiver. Was Moshe superior in the respects that we're talking about, though? He was good at it. But he what? I mean, you can, you can tell that he wasn't, he wasn't perfect at this. How do we know he wasn't perfect at it? Because he did a lot of miracles. Well, no, not just a lot of miracles. He made mistakes. Did the people... Fully accept Moshe's uh, leadership? Uh, did, the, did Moshe usher in a messianic era? So, in terms of prophet and teacher and lawgiver, Moshe maybe excels over Mashiach. But in terms of these characteristics, right? King, visionary, right? Changing people's whole sense of consciousness and their place in society, right? Reaching everyone on earth, right? 
Mashiach superior. And Moshe recognizes, he's like, why did you send me? I'm just starting the project. Send Mashiach, he can finish the project. And God said, no, I don't want to do it that way. So in one sense, it's like Moshe, but in the other sense, it's almost the reverse, that Moshe is just, you know, version 1.0. Mashiach, in that sense. I don't mean to say Mashiach superior to Moshe in all respects. So now you've got to think about this. If you now, what... If, if a person is created in the image of God, now we're going to say we're going to get a little more metaphysical. If a person is created in the image of God, so then what does it say about Mashiach? We're all created in the image of God, right? But if we go around, do all of us live our lives as if we're created in the image of God? Could you be, could you be doing the thing that, this role that Mashiach has to do that we described if you're not really feeling living in the image of God? Now let's take one step more. In Hasidus, we have this idea that every Jew has a godly soul. So what would that mean about Mashiach's relationship with his own godly soul? What has the Mashiach mastered? It's we have to create tzaddik, but not just any kind of tzaddik. A tzaddik, tzaddik. Who, right, it's tzaddik in the most complete sense. Mm-hmm. So, but what I want you to see is, you know how, I want you to see how I took something that's a very like, straightforward understanding of Mashiach and the person of Mashiach, because the goal of my class, this class today is that I just want to give you a context. So sometimes we say like all sorts of spiritual stuff and metaphysical stuff and philosophical stuff. It is supposed to be quite grounded. Now, I want to point out one other thing. If something is unexpected, does that make it unnatural? No. Give me an example of something that's unexpected, but it's natural. Um, what? Tornadoes. tornadoes. Right? What would, be, what would be the way you could tell whether something is unexpected but natural versus something that's just unnatural? If it never really happens. What? Like if it never happens, it's unnatural? No, because there could be things that only happen as you put it when the stars align just right and still be very natural, right? Yeah. So here's the thing. If after it happened, you looking back, it makes sense, then what does it mean? But if looking ahead, you can't, you can't predict it, that doesn't mean it's unnatural. It just means that you're working off of limited information. You see the difference? Okay. When you find a lost object, you lost your keys. When you find your lost keys, does it make perfect sense that they were where they were when you found them? Yeah. What? Like generally, where do you find your keys? Where you left them or where the person who had them left them, right? And so as soon as you're like, oh, that's where they are, like a perfect sense, that's where they would be, right? The moment before you found them, did you expect them to be there? Yeah. Our sages say that Mashiach's coming is like finding a lost object. Meaning, this shift is so radical in the way reality works that when you try to predict it, imagine how it's going to play out, it just seems unnatural. unnatural. It seems magical. But the thing is, it's not magical. There's an actual person who has the capacities to do these things. And when you see it play out, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense that 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 worked out. And would you like a negative example? There's a very good negative example. Okay. What? The negative example is going to use was Hitler. Yes. Uh, If you had been in Germany in 1931 and 32, would you have predicted what Germany would look like in late 1933, 34, no. 35. No. But knowing that it worked out that way, can you see how that makes a lot of yeah. sense? Track it. Yeah. 
And the more I used to actually start thinking, you realize this, and by the way, I'm not encouraging people to read the news, but if you want to do something that is very messianic, read the news and pay attention to how the news relates to the future, what it predicts. And like keep a record of that and then come back like a week and a month later and you see how... <laughs> you see how like the way people... Like, there's a, there's a, like, like we keep retrofitting the way we understand the world because it turns out we didn't expect things to work out that way. Right now we're all used to the idea there's a war in Ukraine. Yeah. But do you remember when like it was this kind of of course there can't be a war in Ukraine. That makes no sense. And like now that it happens, like actually, you know what? How did we not see that coming? What about the pandemic? That was like the biggest shock. Pandemic. No, but but so now but the thing is the the big the more unexpected the change, right, the more unexpected it is, but it doesn't make it more unnatural. And so and, and now if you go even further, so if we say that there's like changes in the actual nature of reality, like let's say for one of the prophecies when Mashiach comes is that the wolf will lie with the lamb, which taken as a metaphor means simply there will be no anti-Semitism, but taken literally means that the nature of carnivores will change, that they will not eat other animals. Now, could it be that that's a literal prophecy and that there will be no more carnivores when Mashiach comes? It could be, right? Now, if it happens, will it seem like a miracle, though? Or will it seem that biology was apparently much more complex and involved in nuance than we ever fathomed? And once, now I can't explain what that would be like, but for that matter, you know, go back 100 years and explain to someone modern technology. So it's very important to understand that when we're thinking about these things, we have to have that framing. Mashiach is a person who acts as a person. And as you put it, we all have a little bit of kind of a Mashiach in ourselves. We all have a godly soul. We all have the image of God as human beings. And so all Mashiach is doing that is taking that and using it to the fullest. There is nothing divine about Mashiach any more than there's anything fundamentally divine about you or me. It's just Mashiach is appointed by God to do it very effectively, and we don't do it as effectively on our own. How do each of us have a if Mashiach means to be appointed by God for some specific mission, were you appointed by God for some specific mission? But like you said, it's the Mashiach. Right? I didn't say it's the Mashiach. That's right. Like the, what you're doing is you're you're making it into this. You're making it cultish. <laughs> the Mashiach. But are we speaking about the, the What's that? What's that? Is your mission fit into the general framework of more the world following the will of God and doing mitzvahs as it should? And is that not the pointed task of the Mashiach? It's not the only. That's just the only task. What, what, what other thing is Mashiach supposed to do? Isn't he a person in a high position of power or someone who... In order to... Do that, but not every... So you have a, some part of that. In some small way, you do that in your own way, right? Or supposed to. That's why we bring Mashiach. But we're not Mashiach. <laughs> but we... But, it depends, it depends how, it depends how literal you want to be using the idea. In the people you interact with, are you not supposed to, in your own life, the people you interact with, try to make sure that more of the mitzvahs are being done, more of God's will is being filled, filled in the world, remove as many subjective, objective obstacles from those in your life as gradually as possible? Right, you could be like a little, yeah. little tiny machine, a little tiny way, but but not like a... Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I said, right? Yes. What? Yes. 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 Absolutely. 
What? One of the halachic principles of the mitzvahs is a, I'll just give you one example. One of the halachic principles is a concept called arvos or, or guaranteeership, which is the idea that every Jew, so I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you the more simple un, uh, explanation of it. Every single Jew who is obligated in any particular mitzvah carries with it an obligation to ensure every Jew who has that same obligation fulfills their mitzvah. This is the basis of why one person can do a mitzvah on your behalf. Why is it that I am able to say, um, make kiddish on your behalf? Is because we're both obligated to do kiddish, so my obligation entails some element of your obligation. Um, this is why if two people are not obligated in the same mitzvah, one can't do it on the behalf of the other person. Which means, in some sense, and this has halachic ramifications, if not every Jew has put on tefillin today, then I have not completed an entirety of my obligation of tefillin. Now, does that overwrite every other mitzvah obligation I have? No. But it does mean that all things being equal, I should go run around putting tefillin on everybody. <laughs> but if everything is not equal, right? I have other obligations as well. Um, but that's a halachic concept. It's like not even a... Then there's another concept where the Jewish people were given the Torah as a community, and so the covenant is on a communal level. We see there's many, many mitzvahs that operate based on that principle. I'll give you one example. Most people don't know this. The mitzvah of tzedakah. One of the rules in the mitzvah of tzedakah is you have to provide the poor person with whatever they need. What does it, what does it mean what they, whatever they need? I don't know what the definition of what need is. And, and, what their standard of living is. Somebody who lives in the suburbs and can't pay their, make their mortgage payments and is going to lose their house and have to move into an apartment. Are they entitled to tzedakah to help make their mortgage payments? Yes. Somebody who has two cars in their family because that's a standard of living that they're used to and now they can't afford to maintain two cars. Are they technically entitled to tzedakah? Yes. Now, there's ranking. I mean, if somebody doesn't have food to eat, that obviously takes precedence. But, okay, now, who has an obligation to provide person for what they need. Whose obligation is that? No. Everybody? No. Nope. No. Nope. The community. The halacha is the community is obligated to provide for everybody's for every, what people need if they don't have. And then the community has to lay a tzedakah tax on each person in the community in accordance with what's appropriate for them to give. So we see there's many mitzvahs that just often operate on this basic principle of communal obligation. So there's a few different ways you can explain it. Um, and if you get into Hasidus or Kabbalah or anything like that, then it becomes very like, straightforward. Um, we have a notion in Judaism of collective punishment and collective reward, in addition to individual punishment, individual reward. So yeah, we're obligated. Now, there's always a question on the practical level, right? What comes first, what comes second? You know, should I spend time doing this mitzvah or doing that mitzvah, right? I'm obligations towards my own doing mitzvahs or other people's mitzvahs, right? Right now, for instance, um, setting aside the fact that I need to pay, pay my bills and I need to get paid, why am I here? From a purely halakhic point of view, what is the only justification for being here? Because right now, what could I be doing? Learning Torah. Learning Torah. I mean, I'm learning Torah, but I'm learning Torah on a qualitatively lower level than I could learning on my own. It's the nature of teaching. It's something to do with you. The nature of teaching is you're teaching stuff you already know. Okay? And since part of the laws of Torah study is that one should increase the quality of their knowledge, not just the time they spend studying, 
why am I not fulfilling the mitzvah of Torah study to its ultimate, and instead I'm here. There's a responsibility Jews have towards each other. And that overrides that in this case. Right? Now, those are complicated, but it's a very simple thing. And I mean, and this, this, uh, the whole notion of rabbinic law stems to that fact. The rabbis make a lot of laws based on the fact that all Jews have to change their behavior to accommodate people who are in disadvantaged or weak situations. There's it in this notion of mutual responsibility. Yeah. And the king is especially responsible. The king is concerned with the heart of the people in that regard. So, and the Raman codifies the Mashiach is meant to make sure that all Jews do mitzvahs. And, you know, the question is what will be effective, right? I'm sure standing there with a gun pointed in people's head is not an effective way of making society, you know, religiously observant and God-fearing, is it? I mean, I'm not saying that there's no place for, you know, coercion ever. I'm just saying that, like, that's clearly not the, the, the go-to <laughs> approach. So, yeah, but then, so then you start thinking of things and then you add in the mysticism, you add in what is the unique nature of Mashiach as a person into this, I think it, it, it creates a more, frankly, healthier view of the whole thing yeah. than if you start with magic Superman comes down from heaven and then candy grows on trees, which is fine if you're five. If you're five, you know, five-year-olds also believe that Mashiach is a giant Zadie in the sky, uh, that Hashem is a giant Zadie in the sky. That's also fine if you're five. But if you're not five, like, you have to grow up. I distinctly, I distinctly remember thinking Mashiach was my father, but bigger and sitting on a throne in the sky. I mean, I, I, at some point I realized that made no sense. But I distinctly remember like a kindergartner thinking that, that you know, Hashem was uh, you know, my, my father, but just really big and in the sky. <laughs> but you know, when you're in kindergarten, it's fine, because you don't think of that as an ideological thing, right? You're not actually conceptualizing. But so, uh, anyway, that's the, the right. So, if you start reading something about Mashiach being like fundamentally different and weird and mystical, whatever else, you have to think, okay, wait, 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 let's, let's, where's the grounding of all of this, right? Um, and ultimately, you know, I think it's important to see that that Mashiach is 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 somebody who's doing what God wants him to do in the ultimate sense, but as Mashiach is a person. In, in the ideal of what a person can be in transforming the world. Not more than that, but not less than that. Can he have helpers? Like, can he be multi, multiple people? So there is one person who is Mashiach because the role of the king has to be only one king. But we all know that a king does not govern the country, you know, just on his own. The king has ministers and agents and all sorts of things, right? If I were to use a Lubavitch idea, the king has shluchim. That's, but no, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, that would make sense, right? Um, we don't see that, that King David did, you know, he didn't run around doing everything on his own. So, what would it mean, therefore, to believe in the coming of Mashiach as the individual person, not just the arrow? That's what I want to end off on. It means you believe that there's, it's possible for a person to really be as God intended a person to be 
and that that human beings in general and Jews in particular have a tremendous ability to be good to be influential right doesn't mean that they become God it means that when God gave us this ability to have vision and to influence in a positive way and to transform the, ourselves and those around us that that, that ability is, is far more profound and far deeper than we take it to be and that somebody will eventually manifest that fully and you know go. could be but that's secondary in other words you, you, uh, someone, you have to always ask the question what's the person's primary role Moshe's primary role is that of a teacher and lawgiver even the fact that he's a prophet is a kind of a secondary thing. Mashiach's primary role is that of a king. I mean, the fact that an Archbishop Mashiach will also be a teacher of Torah is also important, but that's a secondary thing. Does that make sense? Your community rabbi is primarily what? Yeah, but what kind, what's the role of the community rabbi? To look after the community. His role is not, is not, his role is not primarily to be a scholar. It's very important. Right? The primary role of, of, of a community rabbi is to look after the community. Does he need a certain level of scholarship? Yes. But is that, is that the primary quality you look for? No. no the primary look for is his ability to care for a community in accordance with Jewish values. That's the primary thing you look for. So if you have two people, one is a great scholar and one is less of a scholar, but the one's less of a scholar is, has those qualities. They're the community rabbi. And the scholar sits in his room. And if the community rabbi has a scholarly question, then consult the scholar. That's the way it works in your life. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, do we know what the Jewish nation is going to look like? They're going to be green. Mm-hmm. We're going to still keep what? Um, like, okay, so so there's a general rule. If Mashiach is about being able to Judaism properly, so we have to ask ourselves: Is something a part of Judaism that is a just a Compensation for something negative, or is there to have some kind of kind of inherent positive value to it? So this is something that I would speak about all the time. Anything in Judaism which has a value to it doesn't disappear when Mashiach comes. And maybe the way it gets incorporated is going to look slightly, slightly different. So let's use an example. Is it very clear that there's a value of having small community, local community? Is there a value to that? Okay. There's also right, we we're like you know. Is there also a value to all the Jewish people worshiping God as one collective? Sure. So Mashiach comes, which one are we going to do? Are we going to have small communities or are we going to worship God as one? Probably both. So we're going to go to the base of English and have, you know, one central place of worshiping Hashem in the base of English. And we'll also probably have our own communities or their own rabbis. There's no reason why you don't have both of those things. Um, is there, does Judaism celebrate the fact that different people think differently? Does Judaism think, therefore, that everybody is entitled to have an opinion about everything and, and there's no notion of communal conformity at all? Also not, right? So then somehow in the Arab Mashiach, both the things are going to have to be like, That's how you have to think about it. Now, if you can envision what that would look like ahead of time, great for you. 
you might be right, you might be wrong. And if you can't, okay, so you can't. Um, you know, so like what elements of our culture will be preserved? I, it's hard and hard to say that ahead of time, but what's clear is that there's not going to be anything where say, oh, well, we're missing that part. That part was really important. Because the whole idea is not that we're not going to be compromising our lives in service of Hashem. We're going to be fulfilling it. So, In other words, it's very important to understand. This, I think, is something that some ultra-Orthodox Jews get very wrong. We're not going backwards when we go to Mashiach. So think about things that are different now than used to be way back when. Like, what are some things that are different about Judaism now? Okay. Yeah, like, to, the, learning Torah on terms of just the quantity of people and its availability is, this is like a new thing. First off, just the amount of Torah that's available to your average Jewish man, and then the idea of educating Jewish women, this is all relatively new in the past hundred years. So Mashiach comes, we're going to go back to the times of the sages where, you know, every Jewish man had a basic level of literacy in, in scripture, and then, you know, the, the, the cutoff of the way says that for every thousand, every thousand children who learn to read, only ten, only a hundred know the Mishnah, and only ten understand how to learn Gemara, and only one is able to actually have an opinion in Jewish law. And so, I mean, the, the, the level of the level, I mean, the, the high levels that people reach, the the, 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 the the pinnacles were very high, but in terms of the spread, not to mention women's education. So when Mashiach comes, we're going to go back, right? Um, what about, so for instance, one of the changes that's occurred, let's talk about family life. One of the changes that's occurred in Jewish society um, is that it's much more common to expect to have deep friendship in marriage, which it's not that Judaism didn't think that was a good idea, but if you look historically, that was just not like, it was like, you know, it happens occasionally, but deep friendship is not a critical part of marriage. And now we do expect to be a critical part of marriage. Is that, a, is that bringing out a positive part of Judaism? Right? I can show you sources in the sage where they definitely think that's a Jewish ideal. So the, the widespread expectation and pursuit of that, we're going to go back to like, you know, shtetl marriages where like, you know, Tevye's wife, Golda, was like, like, does he even understand the question if she loves her husband or not? Like, no, we're not going back to that. So like, like on the other hand, right, the kind of like open-endedness and chaos of modern life, well, that won't be there. So you, it's, it's hard to imagine certain things. Some things you can imagine, things you can't imagine. Um, I think this is very important to realize. We're not going back to some golden age. That's not Mashiach. Also, we have, like, technology now. Right. Right. Like, when Mashiach comes, there's going to be closed circuit television in, in the base of Middash, so we can watch. Mm-hmm. Or better. Because let me, let me down. Would you like to see the rituals in the temple? Is everybody able to halachically enter the temple? Do we have the ability to watch it live now? Yeah. And, you know, certainly on weekdays and maybe even on Shabbos, there may be other halachic principles that could allow it even be on Shabbos because many things that are rabbinically prohibited are not prohibited in the temple. So depending on the exact nature of how we rule into our technology are not permitted, prohibited in the temple. I don't know. Right? The obstacles kind of just fall away. They fall away because people are, have wisdom and vision and clarity. Now, could it be more transformative than even, maybe we, technology isn't even the means. Maybe, maybe we access parts of our soul which give us direct kind of insight into things. 
maybe like I don't know like like once we're w- w- I think the thing to realize is that you don't really know how far this goes because you don't have a basis for evaluating it ahead of time it's going back to being unexpected but what's for sure the case is once it happens no one's going to be like it's not going to be like the exodus from Egypt when the exodus from Egypt occurred right afterwards what did the people say what did the people think after the exodus from Egypt they thought like oh that makes sense right that's what happened, right? The Jewish people left Egypt and they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. No, they're constantly like, I don't know about this whole thing, right? It seems odd to them because it was odd. It was miraculous. It was a, a disturbance in the way the world works. And that's why the Jewish people didn't really um, handle it so well. So um, one of the, my father, when I was growing up, he used to say the difference between the coming of Mashiach and the exodus from Egypt is in the exodus, everyone said, wow. And Mashiach comes over and says, oh, that's the difference. So, I mean, again, maybe it's beyond technology, right? I mean, certainly the more you understand about Jewish mysticism, the more that would make a kind of sense. But I think it's important to, like, have the, that point that it's fundamentally about we really can do what the Torah says. Yes. Um, well, that would depend on exactly how you're asking the question. I'll tell you the following. Because Mashiach is someone appointed to do something, right? They have to be able to do those things, right? So somebody who can't do those things is clearly not Mashiach. Um... So, if someone believes that somebody who has died or is hiding or has yet to be born is Mashiach, then there must mean that they believe this person will be eventually able to do those things, but not that they currently are, because you know, like, an infant can't be Mashiach. Because could an infant do everything we described? Could a person who's yet to be born be Mashiach? They could eventually be Mashiach. They couldn't be Mashiach now, right? Could someone who's died no longer in the living be Mashiach? Obviously not, right? Um, so if you mean in the, this very grounded way, Mashiach would have to be a person that, like, you can say, yeah, I can, can do these things, and if they're not around to do those things, not. Now, if you're getting into the question about, like, the Rebbe being Mashiach, and the Rebbe being Mashiach, like, I mean, if, you know, is there, anything in, is there anything in Torah law that says that someone who died and, and comes back to life can't get into these things? There's nothing in Jewish law that says that. A person believes that, a person believes that. They don't believe it, they don't believe it. And I think it's a little bit beside the point. So you're saying, if, even if somebody could or could have been Mashiach, the fact that like, they're not around didn't mean that they weren't Mashiach. Like, Clearly. Right. Right. This is very important because there's like this whole weird thing I don't want to like, like people. I, I want to be clear. I'm not objecting the way people talk. People can say whatever they want because people use the same words to mean different things. But from a purely like technical standpoint about Judaism, um, there was a debate between um, the Ramban Nachmanides and a Jew who converted to Christianity and Papa Christianity. It's a famous debate. It was, the reason why it's famous is because the Ramban got permission to have freedom of speech. Another thing that's relatively recent, by the way. Imagine having to get permission to have freedom of speech. So, by the way, he got freedom of speech, but he didn't get freedom of print. So he got himself into a bit of trouble. But anyway, he had freedom of speech in this debate, and um, it was about whether or not 
Christianity is is true. And in this debate, um, one of one of one of the basic things that um, one of the issues that debated is that Christianity says that the Messiah has come already, and Judaism says not. And um, so the Ramban makes the following argument. He says, I mean, the prophets describe what the world looks like in the Messianic era. So let's go through a few things, right? Um, they beat their swords into plowshares. So then he turns to the king. And he, you know, and, and asks the king, are we beating our swords into plowshares or you have a standing army? <laughs> um, you know, that people, people were going to love each other. People will serve God, right? Like, I mean, so to say that Mashiach has come means that Mashiach has done the Torah that he's assigned to do. Has that task been accomplished? No. So it's like a very straightforward question. And then he says to the Christians, like, if this is your, if this is your anointed one, right, to bring in the world, you know, what the world looked like in the Middle Ages, right? If this is the promised way the world is supposed to look like because the anointed one has come, like, like, that's, that, like, that's just an embarrassment to your religion and to God. Like, to believe in such a thing is, is, is just, it's, it's better, I think, better off you would never come such a person to bring about the kind of world that existed in, 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 the medieval, in the medieval era. So like, to say that someone is Mashiach in the strict sense is a kind of meaningless thing because it's like, as the Altar once said, someone asked him, what if your Mashiach comes and, and Naraj said, what if your Mashiach comes and I don't believe in him? And the Altar says, if you don't believe in him, I won't believe in him either. It's like, if you have to go around debating whether or not Mashiach has come, it's clearly not Mashiach's come. It's like, now, can you say that you, for whatever reason, believe that this particular guy, I mean, you know, if a person were to say, I believe in Moshe, I believe in a person, let's say, let's say Miriam, Miriam had this prophecy. Miriam, when Moshe, um, Miriam had a prophecy that her father would, her father and mother would give birth to the one who would save the Jewish people from Egypt. So Moshe was born, right? Miriam goes and says, this is the redeemer. What does she mean? I mean, he hasn't redeemed anybody, right? He's clearly not the redeemer in the sense that he's redeemed anybody. I mean, what does she mean that she believes that? He'll become the redeemer, right? And then the then he went into the river, and you know what her father said? You know what Amram Moshe's father said? He turned to his seven-year-old daughter and says, What put out your prophecy now, huh? That's what he said. And you know what she said? She said, We'll wait and see. And 80 years later, who was right? 80 years later, who was right? Okay. In the mean what? It's a long time. By the way, I think Amram was dead by then, so he didn't live to see it. Um, so like a person who say, I believe that so-and-so is Mashiach in the sense that like Miriam says that Moshe is the redeemer, then I mean, you might be right, you might be wrong, but it, that's not an article of like religious doctrine because religious doctrine in Judaism is that like there's someone to the point to do these things and he's the person to do point these things as we know because he has, that's right. So any, any, any other discussion of someone being Mashiach has to be understood. And most people, I think, if, if, they're, if, they're, if they're not complete ignoramuses, understand what I'm saying. But man, we all know people don't speak precisely. People expect a certain generosity when they speak. So, so there's, no, there's no notion in Judaism of Mashiach coming in his role as Mashiach and then failing to do so and then like making it up later. That's like silly. That's not Judaism. But... Somebody could, like, be Mashiach later in life. That, that could happen. It took Moshe 80 years to go to redeem the Jewish people. Is the Ramban's debate recorded? Yes. He, he, so the Ramban got in trouble because Pablo Christianity 
lost the debate big time. Um, and he and the Catholic Church put out a recording of the record of the debate, which was completely false. And so Rabban wrote his own treatise and published it. And that got him into trouble because he did not have any official guarantee of freedom of print. And so King James of Aragon, who was the king of that part of Spain at the time, I think it was King James of Aragon, so he told the Ramban that it would be a good idea for him to leave Spain because he didn't think he could protect him against the church at that point. And the Ramban left Spain and moved to the land of Israel. He's a baby priest. He did the baby priest. Um, so yes. I recently printed it out and reread it. Quite fascinating. Um, I think R.A. Kaplan even translated it, but I don't know if it's fully translated. Um, just one note about the thing is that a debate, what is the goal of a debate? To win. The goal of the debate is not the truth. Um, so the Ramban makes several statements in the debate where he, he uses the fact that Judaism loves to have a plethora of different ideas to say that when it comes to non-halachic statements, I don't particularly feel bound. If you find a statement of the sages, that supports the Christian viewpoint, I'm perfectly fine saying I don't subscribe to that particular point of view because it's not a halakhic statement and the rabbis are full of disagreements and that's fine. Um, which is a legitimate point to take in a debate. Um, whether Ramban really felt that you could just dismiss a, a teaching of the sages like that seems to be less true if you read his other writings. So you should realize the context, which it is, but the, the, the points he makes on the substantive issues are like pretty like clearly. Read the... Read the read, Read, you know, from, read the um, scriptures describing the Messianic era. Read you know, the works of our sages. Read the Rambam's Code. And then you ask yourself, has anybody ever done anything like that? And the answer is clearly no. So in that sense, you know, we're, we are waiting and anticipating. If someone has beliefs about who that person may or may not be, they could be reasonable beliefs or unreasonable beliefs. They could be correct beliefs or incorrect beliefs, but they're not like matters of religious doctrine. Christianity, unfortunately, they have this view that that Mashiach came and did his job, and he has to come again and do another job, and like, that's like already like not. There's no such thing in Judaism. You know, Mashiach is here when we're offering sacrifices on the Temple Mount, and the New York Times has published it. Right? So the New York Times, the Messiah has arrived, and they don't mean it as a jest; they mean it in all seriousness, right? And people are writing editorials about they finally understand the mistakes that crept into their viewpoints and in their, in their, in all sorts of things. And, and they see that really there was, a, that had they had a deeper wisdom and perspective, they wouldn't have written the things they'd written. And like, when those kinds of changes have happened, then you know Mashiach is here. 